Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning, Luke 22. Luke 22, if you got your Bible, go ahead and make your way there. If not, I'll have it on the screen for you. Um, man, we are, uh, we're going to talk today about regret, about regret. How many of us have, if we're honest, um, have something in our past that we Regret, regret doing, regret saying, show of hands, even if you're at home watching online, just own it right there, right? Like I remember um, on my wedding day, we had a staff member get married yesterday, and um, on uh, my wedding day, uh, I had this just feeling come over me, and my groomsmen, I don't know what they were doing, they should have just kept my phone far away from me, and that morning I was like, you know what, the song that I'm supposed to dance with my mom to, I don't like that, I want to change that, I know what I'll do, I'll call my bride on my wedding day to talk about my mom, right? That was a terrible mistake and uh, definitely <laughs> regretted it rather instantly and have many other things, right? We've all done it. You know, even, you know what the most common, um, most common way, the last words of a redneck before they die is like, hold my beer, right? It's always there's regret. Um, all of us experience it one way or another. Um, those people who say, well, I live life with no regrets because everything I've done has helped me become the person that I am today. It's the most selfish thing I've ever heard, right? <laughs> like, what about all the things that you've done and all the ways you hurt other people with those things that help you become the person that you are, right? We all experience regret. If we're just a little bit caring, we've got some regrets for things we've said and things we've done. And today we're going to talk about regret, how it does come at some point or another. And when it does, it'll send you down one of a couple paths. Either it'll be a, a path of, of guilt and shame that will eventually lead to, to self-loathing. Self it'll kind of become a part of your identity, that thing you did. Or it can lead you down a path of repentance, which if you follow the Christian response to regret, will lead you down a path to repentance. And if you follow it, man... It'll make the gospel more valuable to you, and you will become a more joyful and humble person as a result of it. We're going to look at two people that our author, Luke, we're going to start in verse 47, and our author, Luke, puts these two people back to back. He talks about Judas and then Peter, one right after the other. Both of them are going to betray Jesus. Both of them are going to regret it. They're going to show remorse. They're going to feel bad about it. But for one, his regret leads him to try and fix it himself, to try and atone for it himself, and it leads to guilt and shame and to his death. The other's regret leads him to repentance and to new life and a new ministry on the other side of it. And I believe the reason we need this today is that Many, many people sitting in church 
have mistaken regret for repentance. You've been on this cycle of you, you sin, you disobey God, you betray Jesus, you feel bad about it, you try to do better next time, and then you fall back into the cycle. And it's just, I'm trying hard, then I regret, then I feel bad, then I try hard, then I feel bad. And this guilt starts to build over time, but that regret never leads you to the path of repentance. Jesus didn't die for you to just feel bad about your sin. He died to set you free from it. And today, I think, is a little pre-Easter wake-up call to people who are stuck in that cycle, feeling bad about their sin, feeling regret, tired of trying harder. There's a lot of hope for you today. We're just going to compare Judas and Peter, like Luke does, as we walk through this passage, verses 47 to 62. I'm going to read it for us and show you these two paths, and really even a third one that we'll see with the, the angry mob that comes at, at Jesus. But let's get in here, verse 47, see the hope that God has for us in his word. You ready? Yeah. All right, let's do it. We're going to pick up in verse 47. Immediately from where we left off last week, Jesus finishes that incredible prayer, not my will, but yours be done. He wants to avoid suffering, but he wants the Father's will even more. And so he surrenders to the Father's will, and now the Father's will for his suffering is coming. Nothing about anything that's happened up to this point is a surprise to God. His will is being carried out. Nothing that has happened in your life up to this very second is a surprise to God. His will is being carried out. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He's leading the group. The other gospels tell us he recently made a deal with the Pharisees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Like he came to them, hey, I know where he's going to be. I know where he'll be at night. I know his praying spot. I'll take you to him for 30 pieces of silver. And at the last supper, Jesus actually went ahead and identified Judas as the one who's going to betray him. And he says, go friend, that what you go and seek to do, go and do it now, do it quickly. So here he is doing what he came to do, betraying his friend. He came near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? With a, with a kiss? I mean, the proximity, it's so insulting. Like, are you really going to act like you love me while you betray me? Are you going to, hear this Christian, pretend to be my friend while at the same time stabbing me in the back? Are you going to pretend to be a follower of Christ while at that same very moment you are betraying Christ? Right? The, the betrayer is also the pretender here. I don't think there's a better depiction of Christian sin than this right here. With the very lips that we sing praise to Jesus, the very lips that we sip the cup of communion with, we also use those lips to speak lies and harsh words and false promises. We kiss the devil with the same lips that we kiss Jesus with. That's what our sin is as Christians. Verse 49, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? I love these guys. This, this is his disciples, right? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. All right, listen. If you've ever been in a brawl, especially one at night, this is what I've heard anyways. Um, here's the deal. 
It's a really tense moment, all right? Right when everybody's right up, lined up, and nobody's thrown the first punch. And then you've got this guy, Peter. Okay. All right. This is not Peter going, Lord, would you like us to strike with the sword? <laughs> that ain't how this works, all right? No, Peter's like right up in his boy's ear, like, you want me to bust him up? Like, that's what he's, he's right there. I'm ready. Let's go. He's kind of jumpy, right? This is Peter. He's the guy that you want to have your back. You just don't want him drinking coffee in a situation like this. You know what I mean? He's a little bit jumpy. He's pretty impulsive. He's got big emotions. I picture him this like loud, extroverted guy with crazy eyes, and he's always sweating. Like, that's how I picture, that's not in scripture, that's how I'm picturing him, all right? Based on all of his actions that he has, right? Um, I see him like this, and he's, he's like, all right, I got it. Doesn't even wait for the go sign, just boom. I don't know how you like sword swipe an ear, right? I don't know if this is a two-handed deal. We don't know, but whatever it is, he just goes, doesn't even wait. And then Jesus does not, Jesus didn't like, all right, let's go. You know, that's not what happens here. Instead, verse 51, Jesus responds, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. In the middle of his own arrest, in front of the very people who are arresting him, this angry mob, he heals one of his enemies. And I want you to see a couple things about Jesus right here. In the middle of the darkness and chaos where it seems like evil is winning. First, what I want you to see is that Jesus is completely in control. I mean, he's completely in control right here. In an instant, he calms everything, which should not be a surprise for us. This guy calmed a raging storm with a word. A little bit of testosterone ain't nothing, right, when compared to that. And then he takes an ear that's been cut off and he heals it completely. He rebukes the disciples. He's clearly in command of this scene. With a touch, he heals. The one who created the universe has never stopped being in control of the universe. So I want to ask you, what feels out of control in your life? What feels both dark and chaotic right now? And I want you, maybe in thinking about that, to take a deep breath. Maybe even go to bed early tonight. Because the one who created the universe is still completely in control of it, even now. Even now. I mean, think about this. Even the fact that Peter struck first, which gives the mob the cover that they need to go after Jesus now, right? That's not a surprise to Jesus. In fact, you go back to verse 38. Jesus says, listen, guys, this is coming. I'm going to be betrayed. And it says a couple of the disciples go, here are two swords. Should we bring them? And Jesus is like, no, don't bring the swords. But clearly, Peter didn't think Jesus knew everything that was up. Peter looks and he goes, all right, um, okay, Jesus, we won't bring them. But then he thinks to himself, you know what? I'll just take one sword in case we need a backup plan. Faith in Jesus plus a backup plan. And I know some of us have Peter-like faith. Yes, Jesus, I trust you, but I also got my backup plan, just in case you need a little bit of help, right? In case, in case you're going to need some help, what security are you trusting in if Jesus doesn't work out for you? If he doesn't work out or he seems like he's not in control, at least you got that fallback plan. That's your God. That's who you really worship. 
forever, mine was money. Peter's was the sword, mine was money. Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll even follow you into ministry, but I'm going to set all this aside and try and grow it so that I can act like I depend on you, but actually I'm going to be okay if you don't work out. I got a backup plan. Man, here's the other thing that's all over these passages, though. Not only is he fully in control, which means you can fully trust him and fully surrender to him and go to him without a backup plan. What I think you see right here, and it's all over these passages, is that he is full of grace. He's fully in control, but he's full of grace. The guy that Peter slices up, his name is Malchus. All right, can you imagine the whirlwind of emotions that this guy goes through? He's there to arrest this guy. Then he gets his ear chopped off, and then he gets healed. Like, bang, bang, bang. All at the same time. Man, that, that's, an, that's a range of emotions, right? That's, a, that's an experience you remember. Jesus heals him, man. What grace. When Paul writes in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you, where do you think Paul got it from? He gets it from moments like these where Christ heals his enemies. He gets it from Christ who says, when your enemy strikes you, turn the other cheek to him. What he does with Malchus is a vivid foreshadowing of what he does for us on the cross. Father, forgive them. He takes on the sins of the very people that put him up there. He's so full of grace. And if you can stop and see the grace of Christ in this moment, by the way, a moment that Peter and Judas are both watching. They're both seeing this whole thing play out. And if you can see that grace, it's going to help you process and receive the gospel of grace, the announcement of grace that Christ offers to you. He is in control. He's full of grace. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me, but this is your hour the dominion of darkness. He's not a criminal. It's not that he's breaking laws. Y'all, it's that they hate him. They hate his claim to authority. They hate how he is a threat to their power because they can't control him. This is most non-Christians. This is some Christians. And there are some people out there that are genuine, like secular humanists, that think there's no God, religion is a construction of humans uh, that aren't strong enough to deal with reality on their own. That is some people, but that's not who's out here arresting Jesus in the darkness. It's the religious ones who know who he is, and instead of seeing him as Messiah that they surrender to, they see him as a threat. As a threat. They thought they had God all figured out. They had God neatly packaged in such a way that they could act like their lives are blessed by God while remaining fully in control of their lives. And here comes Jesus claiming he's the one in authority and he's in charge of their lives. Y'all, I wonder if sometimes we want to crucify Jesus ourselves because of what a disruption following him would bring into our lives. This is your hour, the dominion of darkness. And by the way, let me say this. Just because it's their hour doesn't mean it isn't God's hour. This is big, just interpretively speaking. God didn't say, well, for this hour, I'm back away. I'm no longer in control. 
No, in fact, the hour of darkness becomes the very thing that we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks called Good Friday. Because God, still fully in control, used their darkness to bring about our redemption. Their hour is like, it's like he's saying, it's your turn, yes, to take center stage. But just because they're on the stage doesn't mean God isn't in the director's chair. He owns the theater. It's all his. So if you feel darkness right now, maybe it's like a, a suffering darkness where you've been hurt or you've been wounded, or maybe it's a, like your own sin, like you're spiraling in your own betrayal of Jesus. I want you to know that just because darkness is center stage does not mean that God has left the director's chair. He's still completely in control, and he's still full of grace, even now. In fact, when Jesus dies, it says darkness covers the earth. So we'll look at it. That's why you got to be here Good Friday where we're just going to spend some time Uh, that evening, and just worshiping our way through. It's a very unique moment in the Christian calendar year where we worship our way through the death of our Savior. Full acknowledgement, almost this lament that we have this approach to it. But we recognize that when Jesus dies, it says darkness covers the earth, the ground shakes, and at the same time, the veil in the temple that separated people from God's presence was torn, and it was torn from the top to the bottom. What seemed like the moment of defeat was actually victory for sinners. God from heaven tearing down the very thing that separated you and I from his presence. And this is big because when you betray Jesus, when the darkness of your sin finally sets in, I want you to remember right here, right now, he's fully in control. He's fully in control. You didn't outwit God with your sin. Like when you sinned, you didn't surprise God with it. Yes, you rejected him, but your hour of darkness does not have to be the final word on your story. It doesn't. It was the final word on Judas's story. He never got past his betrayal of Jesus. His sin and the darkness it brought on him, it consumed him. This is Matthew 27. Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned was full of remorse. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us? They said, you see to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed, and then he went and he hanged himself. Man, Judas's regret, it consumed him. I told you there's a couple of paths, and one is this path of regret, it will eventually consume you. Consumed him to the point that he took his life. That's a path that sin will take in you. And actually, I need to say something right here, since we're acknowledging where Judas went and where that darkness, how it consumed him. Whether you're online alone right now having those thoughts of, is it even worth it? I'm so tired. I'm so alone. Or maybe you came here looking for hope and you've had those thoughts. God loves you. He wants you. He is fully in control and full of grace even now. And man, I don't want you to leave here. If you're here this morning, all you got to do is reach to the person beside you, squeeze their hand. And that's the indicator that we're going to come. We're going to pray together after service, and we're going to help you get the help that God has provided and that you can have. And if you're online, you text somebody, you let us know in the chat, whatever it is. You are not alone. God loves you. God wants you. He's fully in control, and he's full of grace even now. And that grace extends to you. 
In fact, we're going to talk more about how that grace, how that darkness doesn't have to consume you in just a minute. But first, I want to compare this with Peter because the scripture goes on. Verse 54. Now we're going to look at Peter the denier. We had Judas the betrayer, Peter the denier. So they seized Jesus. They led him away, brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. This is why Peter's such a good teacher for us, uh, because we can all relate to him at some point or another. Like the guy, like I said, he was, when he was in, he's kind of hot and cold. When he was in, he was in all for Jesus. And then what he thought was an act of loyalty Jesus turns on him and rebukes him, which was not the first time this had happened. There was an earlier time where Peter had actually, Jesus was talking. He said, listen, I'm going to be betrayed by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and it's going to lead to my death. I'm going to go and die for you. And Peter goes, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how it's going to be, Jesus. This will never happen to you. And Jesus whips around and he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like, that is a rebuke, all right? Stinging. And Both of these, what's interesting is what happens in both of those cases is that Peter cannot accept that Jesus is going to die for his sins. He thinks it needs to be the other way around. On top of that experience, they're at dinner earlier, and the passage that we didn't look at a few weeks ago because we started right after it because I knew we were going to get here to this conversation with Peter. Look at this. This is Luke 22. If you look up just a little bit in your Bible, starting in verse 31, he says, Simon Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. The Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Let's go, ride or die. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow Today, until you deny me three, until you deny three times that you know me. So here's Peter. He thinks he's being loyal to Jesus. I mean, you catch that? Like, this is a loyal guy, but Jesus keeps saying and doing things that do not make sense to his expression of loyalty. It's almost like Jesus is rejecting him, like just when he's trying to be loyal to Jesus. And then the sword incident. At the moment of arrest, like when Jesus needed somebody to step in, he gets rebuked. So there's Peter swirling in a little bit of self-doubt and confusion right now. I thought this is what what it meant to follow Jesus, to stand up for him. And even still in this confusion, he's still got this loyalty thing going on in him that he follows. The rest of the disciples bail. They're gone. But Peter follows but he's confused. He's unsure about what's going on, what it means to follow Jesus because he's been rebuked. Perfect time for the enemy to sift him like wheat. So let me just read these next few verses, 55 to 60. Watch them unfold for you. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard, sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. But he denied it. Same Peter, just a few moments earlier, was ready to go to death for him. He denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, after a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. 
Man, I don't know how exactly he pronounced it. I'm not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. Like they're spotting and they're figuring it out. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Jesus' words come to fulfillment. Of course they do. He's fully in control. He's also full of grace. Peter has denied knowing Jesus three times, not in a split second. It wasn't, no, I don't know him, no, I don't know him, no, I don't know him. A little bit of time happened between them, right? Like maybe even enough time to think it through. Now, we don't know what's going on in Peter, so there's no use in, in any further conjecture. We do know what happens next. Verse 61, the Lord, you notice how it, the Lord, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. He locked eyes with his friend, with the one that he had betrayed. He, y'all, he had vehemently, convincingly lied to this group multiple times. Repeat offender. Can anyone relate? You keep spinning those webs of lies. You keep digging a hole, not really sure how this whole thing is going to pan out. But then plain and simple, the Lord looked at him. The Lord looked at him, and this is a look that Peter realizes, I have sinned. All right? That's that look that says, man, I see what I have done, because I'm looking in the eyes of the one that I have betrayed. But what I also want you to see is that this is a look of love. It says, Peter, I'm going to the cross for that very act you just did. That very thing. That's why I'm going. Because that Sin separates you from God the Father. That breaks the breaking of relationship that Peter felt right there. Y'all, that is the breaking of relationship that all of us have as a result of our sin. And that look is a look that we recognize our sin as a rejection of God, but it is also a look of love. This is I'm going to pay for that sin. Both Peter and Judas sin against Jesus. Both of these sins are betrayals. Both of them feel bad about it. Judas was full of remorse. Peter wept bitterly. Both regretted what they did, but right there, their paths diverge. One of them was consumed by regret. Another let regret lead to repentance and found new life and even new ministry on the other side. That's the two ways to respond to your sin today. I'd actually say there's a third. I'm going to show you the path of Judas and the path of Peter, but I feel like I want to acknowledge the path of the Pharisees. They're like, you know what? When I sin, I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to pretend like nothing has happened. I'm going to push it all down, and I'm actually just going to go on about being self-righteous and judging others for their sin instead of dealing with my own. And that's a path a lot of Christians take. And some of the most um, (laughs) judgy, self-righteous, churchy people that exist are ones who have just been trying to avoid dealing with their own sin and allowing the grace of Christ to come in and warm them. Because when it does, you become a more humble, joyful, grace-centered person as a result. But let me show you the way of Judas and the way of Peter. The way of Judas is to be consumed by regret and try and fix it yourself. When Judas felt regret, he tried to fix it. 
And there's a part of this, by the way, that like we applaud. There's something good and ethical about this. Trying to make amends, we'll call it horizontally, between yourself and other people that is good and right. He went, tried to make it right, tried to give the money back, but the Pharisees wouldn't take it. And even if they would have taken it, it wouldn't have changed what he had already done. He had sinned against Jesus, and while giving back the money might be honorable, no amount of restitution can undo what has been done. The only thing that could clear his conscience is forgiveness and reconciliation with the very person that he betrayed. That's why it's in Scripture for you and I. But instead, he just tried to make up for it. And his regret is consuming him. And eventually it was too much. His sin haunted him. It terrorized him. It became his identity. He couldn't take it. And this is what the enemy loves to do with us in our sin. It becomes our identity. And I know it because I see people still trying in their own strength to atone for sins that they committed 20 and 30 years ago. Like there's a guy, he messed up at his job, he gets fired, and now he carries that failure label with him everywhere he goes. He works like a dog because he will not be a failure again. He will not let people down again. He messed up, he did the wrong thing, he did something, and he's like, I'm never going to do anything like that again. I'm always going to be successful. I'm never going to fail, make a mistake again. Look, I'm all about learning from mistakes, I'm talking about your past mistakes, though, consuming you, and you're still trying to make up for them. I'm talking about the guy who cheated on his wife, and now, years later, is still consumed by that sin. Like, that's his identity. Once a cheater, always a cheater. So he walks around in this shame, and it's like he will always be, always be in in her debt. He will never be good enough because he cheated. That Sin-based identity, it's not Christianity, y'all, it's satanic. It just is. And when Christian friends and spouses and churches continue to label someone, look at someone, identify someone by who they were at their lowest point, that is satanic Christianity. It's not the real thing. It's not the gospel. And that mindset leads to churches that aren't following the Holy Spirit. They aren't evangelizing the lost because the primary emotion, the people in those churches connect to spiritual things is regret. My Catholic friends that I know call this Catholic guilt. I don't have any background in the Catholic church, but those that do, they say, you know, we walk around feeling bad about what we did, that cycle, feeling bad about what we did, try to do better, do better for a little while, then mess up, and then feel bad, and then do better again. That's not repentance. That's just remorse. That's regret. I feel bad about my actions. I feel bad that my actions had negative consequences. That's sadness. There's nothing distinctly Christian about feeling bad that your actions hurt others. That's just regret. Doesn't make you a Christian. All it means is that you, if, that just means you're not a psychopath, all right? That you feel bad that you hurt others. That's all that means, all right? The question is, what does that regret lead you to next? Judas never repented. He never sought forgiveness from Christ. He tried to fix it himself. And eventually, regret will define you if you don't do anything about it. And you'll just become 
probably one of two things. You'll become totally numb to the things of God, or you will become an emotional roller coaster. It's the way of Judas, by the way. It's also the way of the world. A world without a concept of forgiveness and new life, genuine forgiveness, genuine new life in Christ, that's a world that gives birth to cancel culture. You did what when you were eight years old? Nope, we cannot trust you now. I don't care how much you say you are sorry. I don't care how much of the silver you give back, how much you say you've changed. Once a racist, always a racist. That's the gospel of culture. Don't you ever sin. And by the way, we're going to keep changing the definition of sin on you, but don't you ever sin. Don't you ever do anything wrong. And if you do something wrong, you can never do anything about it. You can never change. There's no future for you. There's an entire cancel industry making sport of hanging people for their sins. They are culture's Pharisees. You'll never be able to pay them enough silver to satisfy them. What a wonderful antidote the gospel is to cancel culture. The Apostle Paul was a racist and a murderer. He found new life in Christ. He didn't forget his sin. He was humbled by it, and he walked appreciative of grace because of it. Hang on, let's get to Peter. This will help even more. The way of Peter, let regret move you on to repentance. Like I said, your feeling of regret is human. I would say it's right. I think it's actually a great thing that the Lord has supplied in us to like light, a, light a spark to lead us to repentance. It should be a step on the way to the foot of the cross. If you feel regret for what you've done, that is God putting something inside of you to lead you to the foot of the cross. The difference between Peter and Judas was what Christ spoke over Peter. It's verse 32. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you, when you have turned back, that's what repentance is. It is a, literally in scripture, it is a turning back to Christ, a turning away from sin and turning towards Christ. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned back, when, not if, not if, when, because Jesus was always in control and always full of grace. He knew Peter had a hope beyond his sin. He knew he had a hope beyond his sin. And that, oh man, when you turn back, back where? Back to following Jesus. This is the difference between regret and repentance. Regret keeps you looking at you. Repentance causes you to look at Christ. Regret defines you by what you have done. Repentance defines you by what Christ has done. Regret says you are your sin. And repentance says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But Ephesians 2 says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though you were dead in your trespasses. You are saved by grace, by grace you are saved. See, regret keeps, regret will hear grace in sermon after sermon, but can't receive it because it keeps whispering, but I, but I, but, but I, you don't understand, but I. Repentance sees sin fully for what it is and says, but God, but God. 
that would be my destiny, but God, but God, Judas is absorbed by what he has done. He should be grieved by his sin. He should be grieved by it. But the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7.10, this is one to write down. This would be like, man, the interpretation of this whole scene would be 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief over your sin, it makes you consumed by it. Repentance means turn from your sin. Christ died for it. He paid the price. Why are you still walking around with your 30 pieces of silver trying to find somebody you can pay off for your sin? You can't pay your sin debt. He's done it. And salvation, as hard as this is, as hard as this is to receive, salvation is a gift. And today you can walk free. You can walk free. You can lay that burden down. Oh, some of you need the gospel of grace. You started in it. And Judas was a follower of Jesus for a while. But maybe for a long time now, you've been trying to, even though you started in grace, we Christians do this. We try to then um, justify ourselves in our own strength after a time. Oh, yes, we should make amends with one another. But I'm telling you, repentance, let's just use vertical and horizontal, repentance vertically, reception of forgiveness will lead us to genuine repentance instead of empty words and hoping that we get approval for a little while and then we'll try in our own strength not to do it again. It will lead to a genuine change of life. I want you to hear the words of um, Scott Stewart Townend. He wrote a hymn in 1995, but it's one of those that it's like a hymn that you would think was written by the Puritans hundreds of years ago. Um, he said one of the verses that inspired the hymn was 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2.24. I want you to see Peter's words first. Peter. Our Peter. He himself bore our sins. His sins. He felt it. He betrayed him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having died to sin, we might live. And we might live for righteousness. And then he says, and you know he felt it. By his wounds, you have been healed. You've been healed by it. It's not just a transactional thing that happens in the gospel when you receive grace. The Spirit of God comes and heals you. Peter, undeserving of new life, was healed. Healed. He looked at Christ. He was healed by love. That love that says, yes, you're a sinner. And finally, you see it. That's why I'm here. To pay your ransom so you can be healed. New life. Receive it. Townham wrote this hymn called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. You've been around church for a long time. Maybe you sang it. Second and third verses. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. 
His dying breath has brought me life. And I know what he said is true. It is finished. So that, that's not the end because that's not going to be the end of my story. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, not walking in my own strength, not boasting in that. I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain? Why? That's Peter. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this, this I know. This is the announcement of Christianity to you. It's the gospel of grace to us today, church. This, I know it with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And that's what I celebrate today. Celebrate it. So we're going to take communion together as a way to close this. What else could we do? Respond in communion. If you're online with us, we're going to um, have a song sung over us here, and then we're going to take communion in the middle of that. So as the song is played, um, I want you to go ahead and grab your elements, and you'll, you can take that during the middle of the song. For those of you in the room, we're going to lead you in taking that in just a moment. I want you to get into a posture of prayer as, um, as our team gets set up here. And I want you to practice repentance now. I hope you feel regret, remorse, like both Peter and Judas, remorse for your sin. But now I want you with this posture of humility and prayer before God, say, God, I believe that you died to pay for my sins. So I'm not going to try to pay for him anymore. No, I'm going to yield. I'm going to let this feeling, this feeling bad, this remorse, this regret, I'm going to let it lead me to repentance. I'm turning from that sin. And I'm receiving grace today. Some of you might be doing that for the first time. You've never received salvation. This is what salvation is. It's forgiveness of your sin and new life in Christ. He paid for your sin on the cross. He rose again, defeating death. Say, God, I believe it, and I receive grace today. I'm, not try- I'm done trying to earn it. I receive it. Christian who's been trying to earn God's favor, even though you started in grace, come back to grace today. God, I receive your grace. Yes, he's going to call you to making some things right in his strength, not in yours. He's going to call you to walking in new life, yes, but it starts with you and him. You pray, you respond as God leads you, and in a moment, we'll take communion all together.